Calvary, this first week in Advent, the theme is hope. Advent begins with focusing on hope because hope is essential for life. If you lose hope, you lose the purpose of life. You lose the ability to endure hard things. You lose the perspective that things can change, that things can get better, that a new day can, can truly come into your life. And our world often loses hope, or we place hope in all of the wrong things. When we speak of hope in English, it's funny because we, in one breath, say, we hope the Broncos win this afternoon. We hope that we get what we want at Christmas, and we hope that Jesus returns. And all of those are, are different hopes. And hope is not simply wishful thinking, that perhaps, maybe by chance, this could come to be a reality. But Christian hope is the assurance of things coming. Our hope, though it's not seen, is assured to us. Hope is always in something that is yet to be fully realized. And so we as Christians truly hope in Jesus Christ. We hope in the work of Jesus Christ that has been already accomplished at his first advent. And our hope to be fully realized at his second advent, the second coming. In his first coming, he comes in humility, riding on a donkey. And in his second advent, we see him today coming, riding as a conquering king on a white horse. In his first, he comes in humility. In his second, he comes in glory. And we live between the advents. But we live as a people with the confidence of hope. This is what Romans chapter 8 says, For this hope we are saved in the work of Jesus Christ. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is what we're waiting for with hopeful patience. And the hope of Jesus Christ actually colors in the life that we live Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, sisters, about those who are asleep or who have died already, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Our hope in Jesus Christ actually influences even our own grief and our sorrow. The world experiences loved ones dying and passing away, and they have a grief that is hopeless. But we as followers of Jesus, even in the midst of our grief and sorrow, are hopeful. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That the arrival of Jesus Christ is not only the second advent, but his arrival will accompany with him all of our loved ones that have previously passed away in the hope of Jesus Christ. That those who have fallen asleep died believing in Jesus Christ would come with him at his second coming. This is what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So don't set your hope fully on your strength today. Don't set your hope fully on your accomplishments. Don't set your hope fully on your beauty, on your age, on your wealth. All of that 
is passing away. But set your hope fully on Jesus Christ now and looking forward to his second coming when he will arrive to restore heaven and earth, when he will reconcile all things to himself, when he will right every wrong, mend every wound, wipe every tear, and make all things new. We're in Revelation chapter 19 today, and this is the blessed hope, the arrival of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bibles. We're going to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 is just on the heels of three judgment cycles in which God has judged the world. The world has recapitulation in which he, the author keeps going back to what God is doing through the world in increasing measure. The first cycle begins with affecting a quarter of the earth. And then the second we saw affects a third of the earth. And then finally, the bold judgments affect the whole earth. Jesus described this as birth pangs. That you're going to see wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, natural disasters, disease. You're going to see all of these things that will be characteristic of the age, like birth pangs, like contractions. And when they start to happen, don't think that the end is near, but the beginning of the end has happened. And so after Jesus rose from the dead, this was characteristic of the time immediately following Christ. And this is characteristic of our time, perhaps growing like birth pangs. For those in the room who have given birth to children, I hear a new baby today. <laughs> Amen. Don't leave. I love to hear the children in the room. I really do. I love hearing the kids, for it's the sound of new life. But that first contraction, moms, felt different than the last contraction, didn't it? Though characteristically, they're the same. But they come with increased intensity and frequency. And so we're seeing the birth pangs of human history as it approaches its end. And what we've seen is that God has now judged the world in Revelation 18, in the beginning of 19. That there are these, there's this dragon, in which is characteristic of Satan, who comes to seek, kill, and destroy God's good creation. And this dragon has animated two beasts, a beast of, of really the nations of governance and a beast of the religion that marries the state and this beast that allows a harlot to ride it, which is the constitution and the economies of the world in which are all bent against God. And he is bringing it to a climactic close. And the final defeat of all of this evil in the world that has ruined God's good creation is the arrival of Jesus Christ. And here in 19, we're going to see two feasts and an image, a picture of Jesus, perhaps as you've never seen him before. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. That's praise God. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds 
of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so this angel is giving John a vision of the heavens in which are rejoicing that this day that has been long promised has finally arrived. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the first great feast. This is the feast that you are blessed if you are invited to. You are blessed if you are a participant in. When God describes how he wants a relationship with people, he doesn't describe it as a conquering king with subjects that serve him. He doesn't paint himself as like this mighty CEO that has all of his people working for him. When God describes the eternal relationship that he wants with you, he describes it as a wedding feast. The intimacy of a bride and groom coming together and the celebration of those who are there to enjoy the company of God. That's how God views an eternal relationship with you, that you would exist in eternity as a wedded bride with him, with that sort of intimacy and knowledge and relationship of your husband, King Jesus. And this is so amazing to John that John actually falls down and starts worshiping this angel. And the angel says, hey, you can't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. We both serve the same Jesus Christ. Worship God alone. Again, this describes an angel that is not God. It's simply a messenger of the things of God. Now, Jesus is worthy to receive worship. Jesus will receive the worship of people which is a description of the fact that Jesus is divine. Jesus is not simply an angel. Jesus is not a messenger from God. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus himself is God who's worthy of receiving worship. And so this first feast has been described before. We follow these hyperlinks when we're in Isaiah, or sorry, when we're in Revelation to the book of Isaiah that describes what the world is hoping for. This is Isaiah 25, verse 6. He says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow and of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away every tear from all faces and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all of the earth, for the Lord has spoken. They've been longing for this wedding day in which God comes to wed his people in intimate relationship. And here in Revelation 19 is that day, the glorious hope of the things that are yet not seen, our ultimate hope in the return of Jesus Christ. So the first feast that you are blessed to be invited to, blessed to participate, is a wedding banquet. This is how Jesus described the eternal kingdom. Matthew 25, be ready as one waits for the wedding invitation. This is the day that has finally come. And then we get a picture of Jesus. 
unlike we've ever seen him. What, what comes to mind when you think of Jesus, when you visualize Jesus? Some of us are like, well, it's just the Christmas manger scene. Like little baby, vulnerable Jesus. Some of us have this idea of Jesus with like blonde hair and blue eyes and a white robe with a blue sash that someone has painted somewhere and we saw it in some Christian bookstore. And he just looks so fragile. Other of us have really followed a series of like The Chosen. And what comes to mind every time we hear Jesus is just this picture from a TV series, Fun Jesus. And oftentimes, all the pictures that we have of Jesus are rather domesticated, neutered, and weak. And, and sometimes we as men in the room have a hard time worshiping the image of Jesus that's been given to us. And some of the, the music that's written today that you hear on the radio, it just feels like you're singing songs to boyfriend Jesus. And it's hard to sing those songs because we have a bad view of Jesus. And here in Revelation 19 is going to give us a picture of who Jesus is that's worthy of worship, a Jesus who's a warrior king. Verse 11 says, then I, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's a picture of Jesus who means business. This is Jesus as a conquering king, not in humility on the back of a colt, but riding like a conquering general on the back of a white horse. And in this description are 12 attributes, 12 ways in which to describe this king Jesus. Now remember, here's an analogy we began with. Remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature using vivid illustrations and hyperlinks from the reservoir of the Old Testament to draw a conclusion to the story of God. And one of the illustrations we gave early in here was, was talking about a vision of a goat with two heads. Remember this? A goat that had two heads, and on one head was the head of a patriot and the head of a buccaneer. And this two-headed goat also had fingers like a wolverine, and before this goat were seven silver laurels. And this was a description of who? It was a quarterback named Tom Brady. And you, would, and you would understand that if the reservoir of language and description in your life is familiar with the NFL. So Tom Brady is called the goat, the greatest of all time. He has two heads because he's, he's played for two teams, the, the Patriots, New England Patriots, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And he has fingers like a Wolverine because he graduated from the University of Michigan which is the Wolverines. And he has seven Super Bowl trophies, seven silver laurels before him. And so if you have that reservoir of language and image, then you can understand who I'm talking about. And this passage is packed with Old Testament language of who Jesus is. 
And we won't go into all of it, but we'll hit some highlights. And so here on the screen, I've given a catalog of 12 descriptions that you find here in the text. The first one, riding on a white horse. This is first and foremost the picture of a conquering general, king. Those who have conquered their enemies come in victory. And he's riding this horse. And he's sitting and he's called faithful and true. That the one who comes and who conquers, he is not abusive. He's not corrupt. It says he's faithful and true. How would we long to have leadership in our life that's called faithful, not faithless? That tells the truth. That's not a liar. That's King Jesus. King Jesus comes and he's a welcome to our world for he comes conquering as someone who's faithful. He'll never betray you. And he's true. He'll never lie to you. He says he judges and makes war in righteousness. This is where he removes evil, wickedness, and abuse from our world. He's the only one that can come and judge with righteousness. That means he does it rightly, not corruptly. He doesn't do it giving favors to his friends. He doesn't do it to prop himself up, to take advantage of you. He does it with righteousness. It says he has a flame. His eyes are like flames of fire. This just means that fire is, is the sense of judgment and purity, that he sees everything clearly. Nothing is hidden from his gaze. So all the things in your world that you haven't told anybody about, whether it's the things that you're currently thinking about, the things you're currently struggling with, or the things in your past that you would dare never bring up to anyone, perhaps even tell your spouse, Jesus sees it. He's fully aware of it. Nothing's hidden from him. No one's getting away with anything. He sees it all. That's the flames of fire that come from his eyes. In his head are many diadems. We've seen the beasts wear crowns in the, in the numbers of seven and ten. But here he has countless diadems, countless crowns. You know why? Because he rules over everything. There's not a domain in life in which he is not crowned king over. He is the king of all. Six, he has a name written that no one but himself knows. What is that description of? I think it's a description of God's name, because I am who I am. Like there are parts of God that nobody knows, which means you don't get to just look at Jesus and analyze him, critique him, put him in a box, so to speak. There's a depth to Jesus that only God knows. There's a mystery to Jesus that only Jesus is privy to. There's a, there's a reality of him in which we cannot just corner him into a box, define him, and leave him on the sidelines, for he is God himself. He's not an invention of our, our imagination. We don't know everything about him. Number seven, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, commentators point out that this is usually a hyperlink to Isaiah, chapter 63, in which a conquering victor is coming from battle in crimson garments, splattered from the battle that has just happened. But here's what's interesting in Revelation 19. He arrives dipped in blood before the battle has begun. Whose blood is he wearing? His own. 
He comes to us by way of the cross. His first coming was the one in which he gave himself up and allowed his enemies to conquer him, to crucify him on the cross. He died for our sins. He was put to death for our iniquities. And through the cross and his own death, he comes as a conquering king. He comes to his enemies first by giving himself up to his enemies. And then he comes and is called the word of God. That's his name. We should just immediately just connect you to John chapter 1, where it describes Jesus' arrival at Christmas. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And the word came and took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. The description of his first coming. He is the word of God. And it says, And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following with him. He has a company with him. He's not alone. It's just like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, when our blessed hope arrives, he comes with all of the saints, your brothers and sisters, your moms and dads, your grandparents, great-grandparents, friends who have died trusting in Christ, arrive with King Jesus as he makes all things new. He arrives in company. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, this is a description of Isaiah chapter 25, where, the, where his mouth is made as a sword, the words of God, to cut down the errors of the world. This is Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God is a double-edged sword. Jesus comes with the sword in his mouth. The word of God is coming. This is how he's actually going to strike down all of his enemies. The sharp sword comes from his mouth, which is to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Description of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do they gather and conspire against the Lord? He will destroy them and rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God and on his robe and on his thigh. Like Jesus got a tattoo. That's cool. <laughs> it says king of kings and lord of lords. It's not a king or another king, it is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is what we sing when we sing joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord, not a Lord, not another Lord, the Lord of lords has come. Would the earth receive her king? That's Jesus. This is warrior, glorified Jesus who comes to set all things right. This is a picture of a Jesus I can worship. I can give my life to this Jesus. I can trust this Jesus. I can give everything that I have to this Jesus for he will not harm me. He has come to save me. He has come to bring me to a wedding banquet and never leave me. And then there is a second feast described here. This is verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, 
and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with its false prophet, that's the second beast that we saw, who was in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is a description of what the Old Testament refers to as the last battle. We've seen here in Revelation, Armageddon. Perhaps you've known it as the war of Gog and Magog. This comes from Ezekiel 39. And Ezekiel chapter 39 speaks of this great day in which his arrival, in which his patient endurance of evil is finally over. And he comes to set all things right. Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 17 it says, for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and, and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. A great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood, and you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of goats, and bulls, and all the beasts. And you shall eat fat, and you shall be filled and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. That's vivid. It's really hard to stomach these words, honestly. And if you didn't have the work of Jesus Christ in which he is slain first by his enemies on the cross to give everyone the opportunity to be forgiven, to give time for every single person to come to repentance and receive Jesus Christ. For him to delay in such a way that we, we cry out, God, are you even real? Why do you let evil exist? Surely won't you come and do something at some point? Without that, slow to anger, patiently enduring, grace offering, humble, sacrificing king that we've seen, it would be almost impossible to stomach the feast of God. But knowing that all who want to receive grace and be at the wedding feast, knowing that everyone in this room has an opportunity to be there, there's also the reality that at some point God will do the very thing we want him to do, which is remove all evil and all those people who are bent on evil those who have corrupted his world. And he will finally and fully remove them and restore his good creation. And anyone in this room who has yet to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ will be part of the great supper of God here in Revelation 19. It's really serious. There's a real end to it. And I would just implore anyone who doesn't know Christ to receive him. 
Now, there's no, there's no battle here, really. It's amazing. I don't know what images in your mind come to Armageddon. Like Jesus arrives with the troops and then, all right, let's take this hill. Let's take that hill. You go down low, we'll go up high. Air assaults, rockets. No, that's not what's described here. There's no Jesus arriving with the troops and then battle plans pushing on the enemy, but then pushed back. Will they really win? We don't know. All hope looks lost. No, Jesus just shows up and it says by the word of his mouth destroys all his enemies. How's this last battle go? They march on the Lord and the Lord says, and it's over. It's over that fast. By the power of his mouth, he destroys his enemies. Now here in Revelation 18, there's just this one little phrase and it's for you. Verse nine, it says, write this, write this, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He has sent out worldwide invitations. And the invitation reads to you, blessed, this is a blessed invitation. You are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You are invited to participate in what God is doing for eternity to wed a people to be with his people forever. Now I get it. If you're, like, if you're like at my house, you have like a stack of envelopes around this time of the year. Some are Christmas cards. Some are bills. Some are, you know, just from, from companies that want your attention. And in this big stack of envelopes, there's a wedding invitation in there. And it says from God. Now, now some of us have a fear of God. And so when we saw that it was from God, we kind of set that to the side, thinking if, if I open that envelope, it's going to be God telling me how much he hates me, all the wrong that I've done. He's got those judging eyes that have seen everything in my life. It's probably going to be a list, like the naughty list of all the things that I've done. And you're reluctant to open it because you think it's going to harm you. That's not the wedding invitation. The wedding invitation is that you would open it and say, by the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, by way of the cross, you are cordially invited to eternal life, to join Jesus in the new kingdom, the new heavens, and the new earth that will never end. And the appetizer to that is the communion table. Communion is the appetizer which wets our appetite for the feast that is coming. To wine and dine with our husband. So when Paul talks about communion, this is what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and then... That and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he what? He comes again. So this is what we remember as we proclaim where our ultimate hope is. Our ultimate hope is found in the work of Jesus Christ 
and in his next coming to restore all things. If you want to be at the wedding feast with the Lord Jesus, you're invited. RSVP is required. And in this long, patient waiting so that no one would be absent, Revelation 19 does warn us that there will be a day like a thief in the night in which it comes to an end. Really, it all just begins.